for such great music this morning. Thank you, church, for singing nice and loud. It's always great to hear those voices, voices of encouragement, reminding us of the truth of God's goodness and his grace to us. Joshua chapter 21, if you're using one of the few Bibles, it's page 195. I would encourage you just to have that open. Uh, Joshua chapter 21 is the, the last chapter in the third section of the book of Joshua. Uh, there are four sections, and we'll start the next section next week. But this is the bringing closure to the third section. So just by way of review, the first five chapters were more the preparation, right? Israel is on the uh, east side of the Jordan River. They've been just, they've finished 40 years of wandering through the wilderness. And so the time has now come for them to cross over to the promised land. So we see all the preparations being made and the, 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 the crossing over the Jordan River and settling uh, they're in the land about to go to war. The second section records mostly the, the battles that take place. We have, the, of course, the Battle of Jericho and the Battle of Ai, those two big uh, major battles, sort of the beginning. But then you have the summary of the rest of the fighting that takes place in chapters 10 through 12. And we see there that, that the Lord gave Israel, the, the land of, of Canaan, into Israel's hands. He had fought for them. He gave them great victory by his faithfulness and by his power. They took possession of the land. They defeated their enemies and the land became theirs. The third section, chapters 13 to 21, is primarily about dividing up this land. So the land is theirs. They've won uh, the victories to, to take possession of the land. So now in chapters 13 through 19, uh, those, that land is distributed among the 12 and each of the tribes gets an allotment. But even by the end of chapter 19, there's still one tribe, the tribe of Levi, that doesn't have any land inheritance. And that's what chapter 21 is about this morning. It's about trying to remedy that situation. What do we do with the tribe of Levi? What is the inheritance that they are going to receive? And what we see here in chapter 21 is a bit unique because the tribe of Levi is unique among all of the Israelite tribes. So this morning we're going to sort of take a big picture view. This is one of those chapters where it's very difficult to go word by word, verse by verse. We're going to take a big 30,000 feet view of what's happening in chapter 21, trying to place this in the context of the overall scriptures, not just the Old Testament, but also the New Testament. What is the Levitical inheritance that is mentioned here in chapter 21? Why is it different than the inheritance that the other tribes received? And then even more importantly for us, how does this relate to Christian faith? How does this relate to our lives? How does this relate to our church? How does this relate to our ministry? And we'll try to, to deal with that in the back half of the, of the sermon. So let's look at chapter 21. We're not going to read the whole chapter. I want to read verses 1 through 8, and then I want to skip down to the end of the chapter, verses 41 to 45. Let's start in Joshua 21, verse 1. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, The Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. The lot came out for the clans of the Kohathites, So those Levites who were descendants of Aaron, the priest, received by lot from the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin, 13 cities. And the rest of the Kohathites received by lot from the the clans of the tribe of Ephraim, from the tribe of Dan, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, 10 cities. The Gershonites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Asher, from the tribe of Naphtali, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan, 13 cities. 
the Merarites, according to their clans, received from the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the tribe of Zebulun, twelve cities. These cities and their pasture lands, the people of Israel, gave by lot to the Levites as the Lord had commanded through Moses. And then in verses 9 through 40 are the, uh, the listing out of what those cities were, which of those uh, in, uh, seg- segments, clans, the Levites got which cities and what tribes. And then we're going to skip down to verse 41 where we see the summary of this. The cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its pasture lands around it, so it was with all these cities. And then we have a nice summary to really the uh, whole section, chapters 13 to 21. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. If we look at how this chapter begins, we see in verses 1 and 2 that the Levites approached Joshua, again, the political leader, the military commander of the Israelite army. Also, he approached, they approached Eliezer, who was the Israelite high priest, as well as the tribal elders, the elders, the leaders of the individual tribes. And the Levites come together with this assembly and they ask about the command that the Lord had given to Moses, had actually given to Israel through Moses back during the wilderness years about their inheritance. Now, before we go any further, this is where we kind of maybe need to step back and kind of place some things in context. And again, I don't mean to belabor the history or belabor the context, but I think this might be a good place to sort of flesh out some things where these things that maybe seem so kind of bring into the light a little bit or we bring some more clarity to. So I'm going to ask a, a series of, of basic questions, background questions, fundamental questions that will, I think, lead us into what's happening in chapter 21. So the first question is, well, who were the Levites? Who were the Levites? The Levites were the descendants of Levi. Levi was Jacob's third son. Now, again, to again put this in some context, if you don't know your Old Testament history, Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. Abraham was the patriarch of Israel. He's the one whom after the flood and after the Tower of Babel, God called out and said, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world because the world was in sin. Sin had spread and corrupted the entire human race. God says, I'm going to separate Abraham and I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. I'm going to bring my salvation, my redemption through Abraham's family. And so Abraham, he, you know, the, was, his wife was barren. She finally gave birth to a son, Isaac, after about 100 years. They were 100 years old. Isaac and Rebekah had two sons, Jacob and Esau, the twin boys. And God had chosen Jacob to be sort of the, the branch of the lineage of Abraham through whom this blessing would come. And then Jacob, who, who God changed his name to Israel, that's where the name Israel comes from. It was Jacob's new name. Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons, their families become the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? Now, among those 12 tribes, then, we have the tribe of Levi, the descendants of the son Levi, Jacob's son Levi. And God set apart this tribe, the tribe of Levi, as a special tribe. A tribe distinct from the other tribes, a tribe that exclusively belonged to himself. Numbers 8:14, the Lord speaking to Moses and to Israel says, Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the people of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. Okay? So there was a special designation on the tribe of Levi that the other 11 tribes did not have. 
And the Old Testament gives us two reasons for why God set Levi apart. First, the Levites alone, among all the Israelite tribes, answered Moses' call to bring judgment to Israel for worshiping the golden calf. So go back to, to Exodus chapter 32 and the story of the golden calf. The, uh, the, the people had come to Aaron and said, you, you know, they brought all their gold and all their, all, all their golden implements and jewelry and earrings and things. And, and Aaron melted it down and formed the golden calf for them to worship. And God was, of course, displeased by that. And so when God intended to bring judgment to the people of Israel, he had Moses issue a call for those who would be faithful to the Lord to join him in bringing about God's judgment. And the sons of Levi answered that call. Exodus 32, beginning in verse 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his sons and of his brothers, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So Moses issues that call. The Levites stood up and said, We are on the Lord's side. We will defend the holiness and righteousness of God. We will be instruments of judgment. And God used them to bring judgment to his people. And for that reason, then God set this tribe apart. This tribe was the one that wanted to vindicate the Lord's name. This is the tribe that wanted to condemn false worship. And so the Lord set the Levites apart because of their faithfulness. And he ordained them to his service. We'll come back to that in a moment. The second reason that God set apart the Levites for himself was to be the redemption price for all the firstborn, all the firstborn male human beings, all the firstborn male animals that were born to the Israelites. Numbers 8, verses 16 and 18 says, For they, referring to the Levites, are wholly given to me from among the people of Israel. Instead of all who opened the womb, all the people of Israel, I have taken them for myself. For all the firstborn among the people are mine, both of man and of beast. On the day I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them for myself. And I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. Now, in God's economy, the firstborn of every man and beast belongs to God. And we see what God means by that in the tenth plague in the land of Egypt. You remember that when, when God, when, before, before the Exodus, when God sent the tenth plague... He sent the angel of death to strike down all the firstborn, both human beings and animals, in the land of Egypt. He spared his people by giving them the provision to put blood upon their doors, right? That would be the sign for the angel of death to pass over. But the idea there was that all the firstborn belonged to the Lord, and God took their lives in the land of Egypt. Now, instead of taking the lives of his own people, he, said he, he instituted a substitute. The Levites here become a substitute for all the firstborn human beings and animals in the land, excuse me, among the Israelites. So they function as the redemption price. And for God to spare the firstborn of all the Israelites, he says, I'll just take the tribe of Levi. Those will be mine. I will take them and I will use them for my special purpose. And so what I want us to see here at this point is that the Levites were a special tribe. They had a special place for the Lord among the Israelite tribes. They were a, a tribe that belonged exclusively to him. Okay, well now what do they do? 
What was the purpose for which God had set them apart? What was their role within the Israelite community? How do they stand out besides just being the tribe that belongs to the Lord? Well, in Exodus 32, verse 29, which we read a moment ago, God ordained the Levites to the service of the Lord. The Levites were responsible for maintaining the proper worship of the Lord, first at the tabernacle and then later on at the temple. They were to be his ministers. They were to be his servants for worship, for the, the, leading the worship system that would allow Israel to worship the Lord. Well, Levi had three sons. Levi, the son of Jacob, had three sons. And those three sons are named Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And so the descendants of those three sons had each of those clans had special responsibilities in caring for and maintaining the tabernacle and officiating worship. The Gershonites, which are mentioned in verse 6 and also in verses 27 to 33, these were the descendants of, the, of, of Gershon, Levi's son Gershon. They were responsible for setting up, maintaining, taking down, and transporting all of the tabernacle's textiles and coverings. If the tabernacle had something to do with cloth, it was the purview of the Gershonites. The Gershonites were also responsible for providing security at the tabernacle to more preserve the whole... So they're not so much concerned with security as maybe we are today, to keeping bad actors out. They were more to secure the fact that people were not to violate the, the holiness of the tabernacle. That somebody wouldn't just aimlessly wander into the place where only the priest could go, right? Or that they didn't touch certain things that had been set off as holy to the Lord. They were, the Gershonites would also undertake the responsibility of security at the tabernacle to preserve its holiness, especially while the priests officiated worship. The Merorites, which are mentioned in verse 7 and also in verses 34 to 40, these are the descendants of Levi's son Merari. They were responsible for setting up, maintaining, taking down, and transporting all of the structural components of the tabernacle, the framework, the infrastructure, the bars, the pillars, the bases, and their accessories, anything that would allow the tabernacle to stand, the skeletal system, if you will. That was the purview of the Merarites. The Kohathites, which are mentioned in verse 5 and also verses 20 to 26, these are the descendants of Levi's son, Kohath, and they were responsible for setting up, maintaining, taking down, and transporting the furniture and the vessels that were used in the tabernacle. Things like the Ark of the Covenant the altar of incense, the brazen altar for sacrifice, the lampstand, the table for the bread of the presence, and the tools used in offering worship. That was all, that all belonged to the Kohathites. Now the Kohathites had a special subgroup, a special segment within that clan that had another special privilege. And that subclan, that, that clan, that subgroup, were the descendants of Kohath's grandson, Aaron. God had set apart Aaron to be the priest over Israel. And so all those who descended from Aaron would be priests who would officiate the worship of Israel. Aaron's descendants would serve as Israel's priests until the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And so the priests were responsible for officiating worship in the tabernacle in accordance with God's law. They offered incense. They placed out the bread on the table. They lighted lampstands. They offered sacrifices. They made sure all the holy days were observed according to God's law. They were the mediators between God and the people. And because they were the mediators, they were to pray for the Israelites. They were to bring the needs of the Israelites up to God. They were also to teach God's law to the people so that the Israelites might walk in covenant faithfulness before God. 
So God set the Levites apart for himself. He set the priests apart for himself. He set them apart for his service. The priests performed the service of the tabernacle. They officiated worship for the people. And the Levites assisted the priests in their duties by assuring the proper structure and functioning of the tabernacle. Okay, well, how does all this relate to the Levites' inheritance? It's important for us to understand what the Levites' inheritance was because it explains why they receive what they receive in chapter 21 of Joshua. Because God set the Levites apart for himself, because he ordained them to his service to officiate the worship that was necessary for the people to be able to worship God, the Levites did not receive a land inheritance as the other tribes did. Instead, God gave them a greater inheritance. And we read of that in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 8 and 9. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to minister to him and to bless his, in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord God said to him. So the Levites didn't get a land allotment of their own, as the other Israelites did. Instead, they had the privilege of something that was even greater, something that was even more special. They were to devote themselves completely to the Lord. They were to serve the Lord. They were to, to dwell in his tabernacle by serving the Lord and offering worship and leading the people to worship. They were regularly in the presence of the Lord by virtue of what God had assigned to them. And it is the, that pleasure of being in the Lord's presence and serving the Lord that the, ta- that the Old Testament describes as, the, as a delight beyond all compare. This was the thing that if anyone could have the option to do, this is what they would want to do. They would want to dwell in the Lord's presence. As we read earlier from Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord... That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In Psalm 61, verse 4, let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. In Psalm 63, verses 1 and 2, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You hear the the trouble, you hear the the sorrow in the psalmist's voice there. So what does he do? Verse 2, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. In Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So the blessing that other Israelites could only hope for belonged exclusively to the Levites and to the priests. And what allotment of land could compare with that? Now, this inheritance raises two practical problems. First, if the Levites and the priests were to set aside all of their time and energy to serve the Lord, 
How would their own practical needs be met, right? If you're, if you're there in the tabernacle and you're setting up the framework or you're putting on the covers or you're making sure everything is clean, the priests are, are setting out the, the, the bread and, and lighting the, 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 the lampstand and offering the sacrifices, how are they going to meet their own practical needs? They can't go and have a farm. They can't go and have a vineyard. They can't have a lot of livestock to, to milk and to use for meat. How are their needs going to be met? Well, the Lord provides two provisions for their need. First, whenever the Israelites would bring a sacrifice to be, be offered, if for most of the sacrifices, a portion of that was set aside for the priests and the Levites as food. Secondly, the Lord instituted a tithe to provide for the needs of the priests and the Levites. And the tithe constituted one-tenth of a person's income. The Israelites would bring that 10% to the tabernacle and give it as an offering to the Lord. And the Lord sanctioned that tithe to be used for the Levites to meet their needs. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 1 and 5 explains this in more detail. The Levitical priests of all the tribe of Levi, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. And this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep, they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the, and the, and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give them. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. So the Lord provides for the priest and Levite's needs, through the sacrificial offerings and through the tithes. Okay, so God deals with that practical problem by not having an allotment of land. The second practical problem is, well, where are the priests and Levites going to live? Okay, the, the book of Numbers gives us the census numbers. There's about eight, over 8,000 eligible Levites and priests to serve in the tabernacle. It's not possible for them to all live there in the tabernacle precincts. There's over 20-something thousand uh, Levites. A total from the, uh, uh, the age of one month old and upward. It's impractical for all the priests and Levites to live there in the temple precincts. And of course, as the time goes on, the nation grows, it becomes even more practical. So where are the priests and Levites going to live? Well, in Numbers chapter 35, verses 1 through 8, God commanded the Israelites to set aside 48 cities from their land inheritance as places where the priests and Levites could settle down and dwell with their families. In addition to their residences, they would also receive limited pasture lands where they could keep gardens and raise a small amount of livestock to supplement whatever they might receive from the Lord's tithes and offerings. These were not to be large-scale farms. They're, they're not to be, again, growing a, a massive herd of livestock. These, are, again, are just smaller means of, of providing food for when they were not required to perform service at the tabernacle. Again, because there's so many Levites and priests, not all of them can serve at once, so what are they going to do when they're not serving? And this would be a means for them to be able to supplement their income and just have something to do. So that brings us back then to Joshua 21. I'm sure some of you are saying, finally. That brings us back to Joshua 21. So here in verses 1 and 2, the heads of the, of the Levitical families come to Joshua, they come to Eliezer, they come to the Israelite elders for these cities that God had commanded the Israelites to apportion for them. Everything else has been done. All the other tribes have received their allotment. 
The lands have been distributed. The cities of refuge have been designated. The final thing left undone before Israel enjoys rest in the land is to give the Levites and priests their cities. And so we see in verse 3 that Joshua, Eliezer, and the Israelite priests and the Israelite elders obeyed the Lord's command and gave the Levites and priests the cities that God had promised them with their pasture lands. Verses 4 to 7 that we read earlier provides an overview of the tribal territories where each Levitical clan would receive their cities. And verses 9 through 40 list the cities and where they fell among those tribes. In fact, I have a map up on the screen that you can see there behind me. Those black dots are the cities where the priests and Levites were to live and also their pasture lands. So this is the cities, and there's a certain distance, even the book of Numbers lists how many, how many cubits can go out of the city wall to be the uh, pasture lands where the uh, Levites and priests can have their, uh, their own little personal uh, property. You can see from the map that the cities are distributed throughout all the tribes throughout all the land of Israel. Every tribe had some cities in it where the priests and Levites lived. And of those 48 cities that are pointed out up there, six are the cities of refuge that were designated in the, in the previous chapter that we looked at last week. The wide distribution of cities positions the priests and the Levites throughout the land of Israel among all the tribes. So in every place, among every tribal allotment, from north to south, from east to west, the presence of the priests and Levites is felt throughout the entire land among all of the tribes. Richard Hess, in his commentary on Joshua, says that the wide distribution of these cities allowed the Levites centers for the preservation and dissemination of the faith and culture of Israel. In other words, because of the blessing and the privilege of the Levites' inheritance, again, that they were to, that their inheritance was the Lord Himself. Their inheritance was ministry, offering worship, doing service for the Lord in the tabernacle, according to God's word. The priests and Levites then were positioned throughout all the land of Israel to encourage their Israelite brothers and sisters to faithfulness. They would be teaching God's word to encourage them to walk in God's ways, to be faithful to the covenant God had made to them. They could be examples of faithfulness. They could show what, what it would be like to be models of faithfulness before their Israelite brothers and sisters, that they could look to them and see a very godly example of how they themselves should live. So they're distributed throughout all the land, and they have a presence throughout all, all, the, all, of, the, all of the land. Now, I'm sure that you're all wondering, what's the, what's the significance of this for me, right? I want to remind us that this is in the Bible. This is God's Word. What's your favorite passage of Scripture? What's that in your mind? Romans 8, right? Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2. Think about those great passages when you read them. It's like, man, that just kind of gives you this spiritual jolt. There's really this powerful encouragement. I just want to remind you, Leviticus 21 may not give you those same feelings, those same emotions, but it's just as much God's Word as our favorite passage of Scripture. They're just as much inspired. They're just as much inerrant. They're just as much... Infallible. So what do we do when we're reading in our daily Bible reading and we come to Joshua 21? I'm sure the temptation is just to skip over and get to the next chapter. What do we do when we come in to hear a sermon on Joshua 21 in the church or when the pastor is preaching through the book of Joshua and he would really like to skip chapter 21 and go on to 22 and you scratch your head and say, well, why did he skip chapter 21? By the way, this is why I think preaching expositionally is a great idea. Because there is not, there are not many preachers who I think would pick this passage to preach on a Sunday morning. 
And yet there is so much wisdom here. There is so much knowledge. There is so much power in what is recorded for us here in God's word. So what do we as 21st century Christians living in America, some 3,000 years removed from this, how do we draw inspiration? How do we draw application? How do we draw any kind of spiritual nourishment from this passage? I want to make three applications from this passage. And they're going to be more corporate than they're going to be than, than they are individual. Okay? So the application here, I think, is more for the church than it is so much for us individually, and that, I think, is important. So first, first application, the, the first, the closest parallel, I think the most immediate parallel probably that we would make between the Old Testament priests and Levites and Christians living in, in the New Testament would be to the offices of pastor, elder, and deacon. Pastors in the New Testament church minister the word, what we're doing this morning, right? Usually a pastor or an elder will be here delivering the word. Pastors and elders oversee the proper worship of God in the church. We do this just as much as the Old Testament priests did. The deacons, likewise, in, uh, like the Old Testament Levites, assist the elders in their ministry by ensuring that practical needs are met so that worship and the ministry of the word may flourish among the body of Christ. So the communion was set up this morning by a deacon. It will be cleaned up after the service by a deacon. There are deacons that will be, you know, can pass out bulletins or do other things that are necessary to be able to allow for the flourishing of our worship, for the word of God to go forth, for the ministry that God has given to pastors and elders to be, uh, to be accomplished. Furthermore, I think the principle of financially supporting a church's vocational ministers is rooted in the financial support that God required Israel to provide the priests and Levites through their sacrificial offerings and tithes. And to the degree that it is able, a church should strive to do all that it can to support the financial needs of its vocational pastors so that they are free to devote their time to the church's ministry, particularly the ministry of the word and prayer. And so I would just say thank you for being faithful in your giving to the church, your tithes and offerings to the church, because that permits me to devote my full time to minister to you. It's not, at least for me, it's not an easy thing to study God's word and to prepare sermons. I trust that if you're being blessed by the preaching ministry uh, that, that I'm able to give you on a week-to-week basis, it's, it's because, in part, mostly, because you allow me to set aside my time to focus on this. And I appreciate that very much. This, and if you've ever had an, if you needed to, to come and talk to me, right? If you needed to make an appointment to come see me, or if you needed me to, 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 to stop what I'm doing and pray with you, those things, I'm able to do that because you set aside the tithes and offerings to provide for my financial needs. And again, my family and I thank you for that. When a pastor has to support himself by means outside of the church, it practically takes him away from what he the church. Okay, so I think that there's a, an immediate parallel, probably the most obvious parallel that we can see in the priests and Levites to the pastors and deacons of the church. But while I think that that is an important application, I don't think it's actually the best application. It's not the best parallel. I think the better parallel here is, is that the priests and Levites foreshadow for us the ministry of the church itself. The priests and Levites of the Old Testament foreshadow for us a minute, the, the, the ministry of the church itself. With all due respect to churches that practice an Episcopalian ecclesiology, like Catholics, like Anglicans, that have sort of a top-down structure, priestly class, there is no priestly or Levitical class in the New Testament church. 
Strictly speaking, there is no bifurcation of the church into a clergy class and a laity class. All who enter the church come by the electing call of God through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We are all brought into Christ the same way. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul writes of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So who in the church takes on the role and the function that the priests and Levites once served for Israel? It's actually the body of Christ. This is why God has given spiritual gifts to all the members of the church. Some are called to preach, some pray, some sing, some serve, some practice hospitality, some administer. But the whole church functions together when all of the members are contributing and serving the Lord to glorify Him and edify His body. Even the ordained pastors and deacons whom God calls to lead and to oversee and to serve in an official capacity, are simply members of the church. We're simply brothers among the body. Unlike the priests and Levites whose roles were decided by genealogy, God endows his gifts upon some within the body as he ordains for this purpose. So the designation for these roles is not genealogical, it's not by whose family you come from, it is spiritual. As a pastor, I speak of myself here, as a pastor and elder in this church, I'm just a brother who you have recognized and set apart to this role because you believe that God has gifted me for this purpose. You believe that God is blessing my ministry. I'm not elevated class because of my position. I'm not entitled to be in this position because of who I am or who my family is or how much money I have or how much education I have or how long I've been a Christian. I'm just a brother trying to serve God with the gifts that he's given me. The priests and Levites of the Old Testament show us also our need for proper worship and teaching. Again, that's their main function in the Old Testament. They were to ensure the proper worship of God, worship according to his word. They were to ensure the proper instruction of the truth so that the people of God could walk in faithfulness. It is the church's responsibility to ensure that we are properly worshiping God according to his word and properly teaching God's word so that we can walk in the truth. Do you, if you remember the book of Galatians, in chapter 3, when Paul was, I mean, Paul has been sent to the Galatian church because they've wandered from the gospel. The gospel's been corrupted. Who does he call out? Who does he rebuke? It's not the Galatian elders, not the Galatian deacons, it's not the leadership team, Not the worship team. It's the whole church. Oh, foolish Galatians, he says. It is our responsibility to make sure that the word of God is being properly taught. It is our responsibility corporately to ensure that the worship of God is proceeding as the scripture says. Even though certain brothers may be tasked with officiating and teaching and leading, it is the church's responsibility to serve and obey and guard the sanctity of God's worship and God's word. I think we can also see this foreshadowing of the church in the priests and Levites of the Old Testament. Remember that the priests and Levites of the Old Testament represented to the rest of Israel 
what the entire nation was meant to be, what God intended the entire nation collectively to be to the entire world. At Mount Sinai, after God delivered Israel from Egypt, and after he had formed his covenant with them, the covenant relationship there at Mount Sinai, he revealed to them what he intended them to be. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God says, the entire world is mine. Now, in the land of Israel, promised land, that was God's special land, where his special people were living. And he had, among those special people, the priests and Levites to ensure that they represented to the people of Israel what God intended for them to know and to do to walk in faithfulness. But the whole nation collectively was to be, in a sense, a kingdom of priests because they were to represent to the world what faithfulness to God looked like. They were to be mediators between God and lost men, lost people. They were to show the character of God. They were to reveal the glory of God. They were to proclaim the goodness of God. They were to draw the nations in to come and to worship the Lord and to be, to be part of the, of the covenant community. They were to, to model covenant faithfulness and the blessing that derived from it. Now, how were they going to, how would the nation of Israel do that? How would the entire nation of Israel function as a kingdom of priests? Well, it's because the priests and Levites were modeling to them the kind of ministry that they would have so that the entire nation could function in that capacity to the peoples of the world. But if you read your Old Testament, you will know or remember that Israel failed to be that light. But that did not render God's plans void. He fulfilled that covenantal promise in the church Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, As you, you all, church, come to Him, come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be what? To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In verse 9 it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, the holy priesthood, we do not offer sacrifices to God as the Old Testament priests did. We don't offer offerings of, of lambs and bulls and, and goats and other kinds of animals. We don't do that because Christ, our great high priest, has suffered the sufficient sacrifice to atone for our sins, all of our sins, for all time. But like the Old Testament priests, every Christian has exclusive direct access to God. We offer the praises of God as spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. We don't need to mediate for us on our behalf because Christ is our mediator. All we can do is serve God and we approach Him directly through His Son, Jesus Christ. We do not need the special prayers of the clergy. We all pray for one another and hold one another up before God. This is one of the reasons why Wednesday night is such a blessing to this church. When we gather together and pray for one another, why? We don't need the priest to pray for us. We have one another. God has endowed us to be a holy priesthood so that we can all pray together for one another. 
We all hold one another up to God. We don't need someone to absolve us of our sins. We may all boldly approach the throne of grace and find forgiveness from God for all of our sins. Why? As Tim said to us earlier in the call to worship, because Christ shed His blood for us. His blood cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Because we are a holy and royal priesthood, our inheritance then in Christ is the same inheritance that was reserved for the Old Testament priests and Levites alone. And that is the Lord. The Lord is our inheritance. Remember Deuteronomy 10.9. Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. That was Levi. That was Levi's special inheritance. But what David prays in Psalm 16 is true for all of the people of God. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. In Ephesians 1, verse 11, Paul writes that in Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Yes, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. Not a plot of land or a city. Not a specially assigned duty or purpose. But the Lord Himself. He is our inheritance. He is the good thing that He gives to His people. He has given Himself to us to know Him and to enjoy Him forever. What a beautiful inheritance indeed. And so the Levitical inheritance of Joshua 21 calls us to see our own inheritance in Christ and to treasure it even more dearly than the Levites did theirs. The third point of application, the third thing that we can see in this passage, the third fulfillment, if you will, is to see that the priests and Levites really foreshadow the ministry of Christ Himself. God gave the Israelite priests to be mediators of the Old Covenant. They offered the sacrifices to God on, people, on the behalf of the people. They prayed for the people. They blessed the people with the Lord's blessing. They taught God's Word to the people. But the church has no priest because we have a priest our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills the function of the priesthood in the Old Testament. But He mediates a new and better covenant, the new covenant. A covenant established not by the blood of bulls and goats, but an eternal, all-sufficient covenant established by His blood. Under the new covenant, the priestly mediator of the new covenant doesn't just simply offer the sacrifice, He is the sacrifice to atone for our sins. He is the one who reconciles us to God. Today, even now, as we sit here worshiping in this beautiful sanctuary, the people of God gather together at this moment, Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, continuing His mediatorial work on our behalf. His blood has atoned for our sins. His imputed righteousness justifies us before the Father. His ministry of reconciliation reconciles us to God. He intercedes for us in our time of need. Why would we ever need another priest when we already have a great high priest? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And verse 16 exhorts us, Let us with confidence then, 
draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because we have a great high priest, we go before the Father. We find acceptance. We find mercy. We find grace. We find comfort. We find provision. So with the assignment of these Levitical cities, the distribution of the land for Israel is now complete. And the author closes this section of Joshua by reminding us of God's faithfulness to his promises. Look at verses 43 and 44 once again. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. God fulfilled every single promise he made to his people. He gave them the land just as he promised. He gave them victory over his enemies just as he promised. He distributed the land to them just as he promised. And he gave them rest as they settled in the land just as he promised. God is faithful to his word and to his people. Verse 45, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. God is faithful. And we are so undeserving of His faithfulness and His goodness. All that we can do, as Israel did in chapters 13 to 21, is to gratefully receive what God has given us by faith and to enjoy it as He intends. So may we dwell in this great inheritance. May God be praised. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for our inheritance, that Christ is our all in all. The most glorious thing, the most beautiful thing, the best thing that anyone could ever have and receive in this life, you've given to us. And for that, we are thankful. There's nothing that we can do to deserve it. There's nothing we can do to buy it, to earn it in some way. You give it freely to us as a gift. Father, I pray this morning that if there are people here that are, that are here today that don't know you, that they would receive this gift of Christ by faith, that they would understand that he is our great high priest, that he laid down his life so that our sins could be forgiven and so that we could be restored to a proper relationship, a true relationship with our creator, that we would embrace him by faith and walk in that relationship. Pray that today would be a day of salvation for them. And Father, for your people this morning, I pray that they are encouraged that even these obscure enigmatic passages in the Old Testament have been written for our learning, that they are true, that they point us to the gospel, they point us to the glory of God, they point us to the goodness of the church, they point us to your means of grace that allow us, Lord, not only to be saved and forgiven of our sins, but to just flourish in this life you've given to us. May we flourish in it. May we walk in our inheritance. To your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name.